just got off a flight uh, that was booked to Seattle and back on all legs of um, the flights that I took. There was about 30 to 40 percent um, masking, uh, in particular the long leg. Um, I sat next to two people who were talking about how they just couldn't stand to wear masks any longer. Um, and I just don't understand it. Uh, wearing a mask is a simple preventative measure, and I don't understand why more people don't just do it. If you've been on a flight or taken public transit recently, you might have noticed things look a little different. Florida Judge Catherine Mizell struck down America's federal travel mask mandate recently. And though companies aren't being forced to drop their mandates, many have, including Delta, Uber, and Amtrak. According to the CDC, the Omicron subvariant BA2 now accounts for 96% of new COVID cases in the U.S. But whether to mask or not continues to be a divisive question. Recent polling from the Associated Press found 56% of respondents believed masks should be required on planes and public transportation. After the break, we'll discuss why people, particularly Americans, care so much about wearing a mask. But first, we hear from Chief Medical Advisor to the White House, Dr. Anthony Fauci. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. Remember to join future conversations, have your questions answered on future topics, or just to let us know what you think. Tweet us at 1A. This message comes from NPR sponsor, BetterHelp. Stress shows up in all kinds of ways. In a world that's telling you to do more, sleep less, and grind all the time, here's your reminder to take care of yourself, do less, and maybe try some therapy. BetterHelp is committed to helping you in times of stress with customized online therapy. Get 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com 1A and see if it helps life feel a little bit easier. We're discussing masking and the latest federal guidelines. Joining us now is Chief Medical Advisor to the White House, Dr. Anthony Fauci. Dr. Fauci, it's great to have you back. Thank you very much, Jen. Good to be with you. You've been vocal about your disagreement with Judge Mizell's ruling, calling it disturbing and a dangerous precedent. What concerns you most about this decision? Well, first of all, there's no doubt that uh, masks prevent acquisition and transmission. I mean, the data that was somewhat vague some time ago or very, very clear right now. The issue that uh, was of concern to myself and those in the public health sector is that we feel that those types of decisions should be at the CDC level uh, and not at the judicial level. Once a judge rules, we all respect the ruling of the judge. And I wanna make sure that people don't get the interpretation that I'm saying you should not respect the ruling. The ruling says you cannot mandate, so therefore the government right now is not mandating or requiring masks on public transportation, including planes. But the principle of the public health aspect of it still remains that people who want to protect themselves, who want to diminish greatly the risk of acquiring infection, can and should wear a mask if they want to. That's a personal decision. So I don't think people should interpret this as meaning Masks are no longer good to wear if you want to protect yourself. And there's a big distinguish, distinguishing feature there about requiring it versus is it a good idea to wear one? We've had a lot of conversations on this show about how the public health guidance and just the messaging around the pandemic has been confusing for people. Do you think what you just laid out for us there, the difference between a judicial ruling and what public 
health experts say is necessary to protect yourself from COVID, that 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 very fine line you just laid out, that it that it's confusing for people who are trying to figure out what's best to do. Yes, I can see, Jan, how that could be confusing, but I think people should try as best as you can. And I'm sure we in the public health sector can do better in messaging that. I think the message that I just gave you a moment ago is crystal clear. Masking is very effective in preventing you from acquiring infection. So if you are in a situation, a public indoor place where you don't know the status of people around you, or even on traveling, if you feel you want that extra degree of protection, you are correct in using a mask. Whether or not it's required or not, masking does prevent transmission and acquisition. The Justice Department is appealing the decision, but even if they win, we've already seen how difficult it is to backtrack once guidance has changed. Now that we've rolled back so many COVID protections, have we entered a new era of the pandemic that we we can't really turn back from? Well, I mean, certainly people throughout the world, including in this country, are really fatigued with now two and a half years of COVID-19, and people desperately want to get back to normal. In this country, we've seen a rather significant deceleration of the number of cases. For example, just months ago, we were having about 900,000 cases a day. We were having tens of thousands of hospitalization and about 3,000 deaths per day. Those numbers are much lower now. That doesn't mean we're out of the woods. That does not mean we're finished with it. The virus is not finished with us. Therefore, We need to continue to do the things on a public health level and on an individual level to protect ourselves. People continue to need to get vaccinated, to get boosted. When people get infected, they should know that antiviral drugs like Paxlovid are much more widely available to them than they might appreciate. The importance of testing, the importance of those types of things. We're not out of the woods yet, but we are in a much better place now than we were a year ago. You appeared on PBS NewsHour last night, and when asked about whether the end of the pandemic was in sight, this is what you said. We are certainly right now in this country out of the pandemic phase. Namely, we don't have 900,000 new infections a day and tens and tens and tens of thousands of hospitalizations and thousands of deaths. We are at a low level right now. So if you're saying, are we out of the pandemic phase in this country? We are. So if we're out of the pandemic phase, Dr. Fauci, where are we right now as a country? Yeah, I want to clarify one thing, Jen. I probably should have said the acute component of the pandemic phase. And I think, and I, and that, I understand how that could lead to some misinterpretation. I was talking about the acute fulminant phase, and everyone agrees we're not there. We're not getting... 900,000 infections a day. Is the pandemic still here? Absolutely. So when I said phase, I probably should have said the acute stage of the pandemic phase. We are now transitioning, transitioning, not there yet, but transitioning to more of an endemicity where the level of infection is low enough that people are starting to learn how to live with the virus, still protecting themselves by vaccination, by the availability of antivirals, by testing. So I really meant the acute phase as opposed to pandemic. The pandemic is not over. Don't anyone think that? 
Let's talk a bit about risk. You told the New York Times you're not attending the White House Correspondents' Dinner this weekend, quote, because of my individual assessment of my personal risk. I think a lot of people right now are having trouble assessing what their risk is. What guidance can you give us? Well, first of all, this does not mean that people should not be attending that dinner, that that gala at all. I mean, that's not the point. Each individual is different. So you really don't want to extrapolate what one person would do and make a generalization for everyone that's attending any event, be that an indoor event, a concert, or what have you. When I said I'm not going, it's because I've evaluated my own risks, which is private to me and only me and not anyone else. But I, but I think this is, this is the point. We are <laughs> humanly pretty bad at assessing risk. So what are the things we need to be measuring as we're sure. thinking about how we move in the world right now? Good question, Jen. So first of all, age. We know that at a certain age, you are at more of a risk of having an immune response that is not as robust as a much younger person. Number two, what are your underlying conditions? Do you have underlying conditions that would put you at a much greater risk of severity of disease if you do get infected? Number three, do you have someone in your home that if you get infected, even if you get no symptoms, could you bring the infection back to that person who might be vulnerable, an elderly person, a relative or member of the family who's on chemotherapy for cancer, someone who has an immune deficiency. All of those factors differ from person to person. So that's what I mean when I say each individual needs to evaluate the risk they're willing to take based on a number of factors which are individual to each person. We've been hearing from parents quite a bit over the past couple of years. We got this email from Maggie who says, I'm a parent of two-year-old twin boys born at the start of the pandemic. When will a vaccine for kids under five be available? Why isn't the FDA looking at the data submitted by Moderna for their under five vaccine? I feel as if parents of children under five have been forgotten and left behind by the rest of the country. What would you say to Maggie? Well, the FDA is not delaying anything. The FDA has not yet received the full component of data to be able to make that determination on safety and efficacy. So I think it's a misinterpretation and a misunderstanding to think that the FDA is holding something up. They are not. They have not completely received the totality of the data necessary to make a determination. That's Dr. Anthony Fauci. He's chief medical advisor to the White House. Dr. Fauci, thanks for speaking with us. Thank you very much for having me, Jen. Let's add a couple more voices to the conversation. Gretchen Chapman is a professor in the Department of Social and Decision Sciences at Carnegie Mellon University. Gretchen, welcome. Thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be here. Also with us is Stephen Taylor. He's a professor of psychology and a clinical psychologist at the University of British Columbia. He's also the author of The Psychology of Pandemics, Preparing for the Next Global Outbreak of Infectious Disease. Stephen, thanks for joining us. Thanks very much. Masks have, in many ways, become markers of a person's politics. But I want to hear from each of you the psychological reasons why some people are more resistant than others to wearing a mask. Stephen, I'll come to you first. 
Okay, thanks very much. Um, the decision of whether or not to wear masks is more complicated than most people realise. It has to do with things like, um, as you alluded to, social signal signalling, cultural traditions, um, political affiliation, uh, what your friends and family are doing around you. But one, one important thing that we've been looking at in our research is a phenomenon called psychological reactance. Put simply, it's an, it's an allergic reaction to being told what to do. It's a you're not the boss of me response. And people raised in cultures that value individualities um, often have high levels of psychological reactance. And so when governments come along and say to you, you've got to wear a mask, you'll get that pushback. Well, Stephen, that makes me wonder how much our communities shape our responses to these types of, of mandates. Oh, very much so. And it's, it's, um, we're influenced by communities at all levels, from political leaders down to more grassroots levels, what your friends and family are doing. All of these things have an impact on the decisions people make around their health. Gretchen, you've said that one reason some might choose not to wear a mask is because they're engaged in motivated thinking. What is motivated thinking and why do we do it? Motivated thinking is thinking that has, as a goal, something in addition to forming accurate beliefs that are in line with the evidence. So you might also have a goal to come to a conclusion that's consistent with your previous beliefs. So you don't look like a flip-flopper who's changing your mind all the time. Or you might have a goal to reason in a way that leads to a conclusion that's consistent with the core beliefs of your identity group, other people that are like you in terms of politics or community or religion. And we do that because we have in life, goals other than accurately perceiving the world. We want to fit in with our social groups and be accepted with them. We want to think of ourselves as uh, rational, good people who have consistent beliefs. And so to accomplish those goals, we may reason in a way that leads us away from the truth and towards convenient conclusions. Now, Gretchen, the reason we're having this conversation right now is because a Florida judge struck down the federal travel mask mandate last week. The CDC is appealing the ruling, but How difficult is it to get people to pivot back to something after they've been told they no longer have to do it? It's difficult because it impacts the trust and perceptions that the public has in authority um, bodies like the CDC. So if recommendations are changing from day to day or month to month, then lay public members who are not scientists themselves may start to think, hey, these scientists don't know what they're talking about. You know, one day they're telling us to do this, the next day they're telling us we don't have to do it. They must not know what they're talking about. Uh, And so consistency of messaging is very important to gain the trust of the public. Well, and Stephen, how does consistency in messaging perhaps help with psychological reactants or does it have no impact whatsoever? Um... Well, you know, you add more information, you create the the so-called infodemic where people have difficulty, even educated people, telling what is accurate and what is inaccurate, and then you have guidelines shifting on the basis of accruing data. Um, If you've got someone who has a high level of psychological reactance, who are, you're not the boss of me, I'll decide what I'm going to do, and that person sees all these um, conflicting uh, pieces of information, then, then presumably that's going to reinforce their view that, um, uh, that they're not going to wear masks. But, you know, there are lots of factors at play as well. What are the characteristics of someone who's likely to score high on, on this psychological reactance test? 
Well, they, they tend to be individuals who, as I mentioned, strongly value their freedom. They tend to be politically conservative, but not always. Um, so they're, they're um, want, wanting their freedoms and not wanting interference by big government, as, as it were. Um, they are people who, if you've got someone who's extremely high in psychological reactions, they do tend to have antisocial personality features as well, which is another reason why you should never go up to someone on a bus or an aeroplane who's not wearing a mask and, and try and give them a piece of advice about why they should be wearing a mask, because you do that if the person has a high level of psychological reactance, two things will happen. One is they will get angry at you, and second, they'll, they'll come up with counter-reasons to justify their own behavior. So that makes me wonder, over the course of the pandemic, we've heard a lot from public experts that, public health experts that we, you know, people who are at odds about masking or vaccination, you need to engage in conversation. You need to talk through these things. Is that an effective strategy with someone who has psychological reactance? Um, it's an effective strategy for people who are kind of on the fence. Will I get vaccinated or not? Am I going to wear a mask or not? Those sorts of nudges and conversations can be useful, but if you're interacting with someone who has a very, very high level of psychological reactance, uh, and if they also happen to believe in conspiracy theories around masks and vaccines and so forth, um, it's going to be very hard to persuade them. But you can persuade people with high levels of psychological reactance if you remind them that it's their choice. And here's an irony. Now, uh, if the mask mandates are struck down, you may find that people with high levels of psychological reactance are more willing to wear masks because now they see the decision as theirs. It's their freedom to wear a mask rather than being told to wear a mask. John emails, I had lung transplant five years ago. Given my immunocompromised state, I've been wearing a mask ever since. Pre-pandemic, I got curious stares when out and about and uncomfortable glances when flying. Over the past couple of years, it was nice blending in. Since loosening of the mandate, I will continue to wear a mask as I will for the rest of my life. I have been verbally accosted for wearing a mask with one complete stranger berating me for her interpretation of what my political views must be given that I was wearing a mask. And Mike tweets, I'm still wearing a mask when I'm out. I teach at a community college and my classroom went from 100% masked to three students and me masked. I also work in retail and in an elementary school. I don't want to get sick and I don't want to get others sick, especially the kids. And Chocolate tweets, no one likes the mask. Mask wearers dislike it. It smushes your face, people can't hear you, and you can't breathe, but it's a good tool. I just want to change how you refer to people who don't like masks, because no one does. Why do people refuse to wear a mask is a better question. Uh, Gretchen, do you see a distinction in that framing? I do like that framing. I mean, of, of course, masking, like lots of health behaviors, are not fun to do. I mean, no one likes to swallow pills every night, but you do it if... Uh, you think the benefits outweigh the cost for your chronic condition, your high blood pressure or whatever. And people who are in favor of wearing masks feel the same way. They don't enjoy doing it, but they think that the benefits outweigh the costs. Um, and, you know, other folks think that the benefits don't outweigh the cost and that it's an infringement of personal liberties or uh, too extreme for the risk level. And so they don't want to do it. I will say here that... <laughs> Masks have actually provided me with reasons. I'm a bit of an introvert in in real life, and so it's for me. It's actually provided a bit of a barrier um, when I'm out in public sometimes, and and I have found that I don't I don't actually really mind that. 
Stephen, how uniquely Western is this kind of resistance to being told what to do, even if it's for the protection of yourself and those around you? Well, it's, you know, difficult to generalise across cultures because you run the risk of stereotyping people, and that's something you need to stay away from. But in generally, mask wearing is more acceptable for people from Asian cultures, but even within cultures, there are, um, there are marked differences. Back during the SARS outbreak, for example, um, th- th- there were conflicts between people. There, there was an incident in, I think it was in, in South Korea, where some students went to school wearing masks and the teacher found that to be disrespectful and there was a big kerfuffle there. So even in Asian cult- cultures, you, you can get some various opinions about wearing masks, but it, it does tend to be more something you, you will see in Asian cultures where they'll wear masks around cold or flu season, more out of consideration for their... Uh, fellow people in their communities. How have we seen this resistance show up in past pandemics? Well, well, here's one of the the interesting and and, uh, interesting things about pandemics. Just about everything that's happened during COVID-19 has happened before in previous pandemics or outbreaks. To give you an example, back in 1919 in San Francisco, during the so-called Spanish flu, there was an attempt to mandate mask wearing. And that led to a protest and there was the brief formed um, Anti-Mask League. And curiously, the the arguments the Anti-Mask League proposed are the same as we see today. They said that masks, they felt that masks didn't work, they felt masks were uncomfortable, and they didn't like being told what to do, which is psychological reactance. So, yes, we're seeing the the same thing all over again. Gretchen, a large part of your research looks at how people make decisions. How does the decision-making of those around us impact the decisions we make for ourselves? Social factors are highly influential. We use the concept of social norms of what do you see, what are other people like you doing and what do important people think that you should do. So if you're in an environment where lots of other people um, who are similar to you in many respects are wearing masks, uh, you're much more likely to wear one. Uh, At my workplace, masks are no longer required and I sort of find myself when I go into a meeting with my mask in my pocket, gauging the room like are most people wearing a mask? If so, I should wear one to be polite, to fit in. If no one's wearing a mask, maybe I should fit in by not wearing one. We're discussing the psychology behind the debate over masking with psychologists. We'll be back with more from you and our guests in just a moment. Remember to join future conversations, download our 1A Vox Pop app, and leave us a voicemail. Let's get back to our conversation on the psychology behind the debate over masking. Joe emails, I don't like wearing a mask for a few reasons. It messes with my beard. It often will pinch my nose and fog up my glasses. And I find it very overstimulating to wear on my face for several hours. I have worn a mask on flights and public transit when asked to, but we can't wear masks forever, or at least not all of us. If someone else wants to wear a mask, that's okay with me, but I will not be wearing a mask as long as there is not a mandate. Jim emails, I live in Florida, where we have have been quote-unquote free of masks for months earlier than most other states. When I say free, I mean free to go around in public and infect anyone anywhere without any feeling of personal responsibility. As a family, we have been keeping up on our vaccinations and boosters and rarely wear masks and rarely wear masks when out. Why protect people who aren't wearing a mask who don't care enough to protect themselves? Stephen, your book, The Psychology of Pandemics, came out in 2019. Your publisher was skeptical anyone would want to read it. Then COVID hit. How accurate did your research end up being? 
Well, surprisingly accurate. Not, not everything, of course. Uh, who would have predicted panic buying of toilet paper, for example? We knew there'd be panic buying, but toilet paper, go figure. But many of the phenomena seen in past outbreaks are remarkably inconsistent in that they arise time and again. So panic buying, uh, anti-vax movements, the protest rallies around social distancing, uh, anti-mask things, they're things that have cropped up uh, in the past. How often have those lessons actually ended up guiding public health decisions? Or, or do you see that happening this pandemic? Um, you know, it's it's hard to say because a lot of the decision-making is made behind closed doors, so you're not privy to everything. But there are some very clear things, that are improvements that have been done around this pandemic as compared to past ones. One has to do with the naming of the disease and the virus. Um, you don't want to name it after people, places or things. You don't want to call it Chinese flu or Wuhan flu. That just creates racism and social disruption. So uh, I think the WHO did a great job in naming the virus COVID-19 because you want to give it a name that that makes you take it seriously but um, doesn't seem to be overly dramatised. So that's one particular lesson. But, you know, one of the problems in managing pandemics is there are so many uncertainties about what to do and and what strategies to implement. So even if you've learned lessons from the past, there's still plenty of opportunities for things to go sideways. Stephen, we've been focusing on on the reasons why people may not wear masks, but when we decide to wear a mask, how motivated are we by the idea of the collective good? Well, I think for many people, it's just a force of habit and maybe they're not consciously aware of performing things uh, for the collective good. And I should mention that there are many reasons for choosing to wear a mask. Um, In our research, we found that many people wear masks because they're worried about being publicly shamed by other people, which is a really oppressive uh, sort of thing to have happening. So there are all all kinds of reasons for choosing masks. But, But when it comes to that collective good idea, is that a pretty powerful motivating factor? It can be, yes. You, you can motivate people. You can nudge people to wear masks by reminding them that they're, they're, they're helping their community. And, you know, during a pandemic, people were struggling for things that they could do to feel safe, hence the panic buying earlier in 2020. And so if people think, get the sense that, oh, I'm doing something to support my community, that, that can um, bring them a positive benefit as well. I mean, Gretchen, when we think about safety and, and risk, how good are we at evaluating risk? The cognitive systems that we humans have were not designed to understand big tables of data from large populations. They were designed to understand risk in a personal context of what we experience. And so that makes it difficult for us to process the big population risk data that pandemic safety guidelines are based on. Um, if, If that risk information can become personally experienced, then it's much easier for people to process it. Wait, so I need you to explain that a little more simply for me. Um, Let's take an example, a non-pandemic example. Suppose I'm going to offer you a monetary lottery. You're going to have a 17% chance to win $27 and 83% chance to win nothing. I could just tell you that information. That would be harder to process than if I gave you a deck of 100 cards and you could flip through through them and 17 of them said $27 on them and the other 83 cards said zero and you could sort of like personally experience the mix of the winning outcome and the non-winning outcome. So I'm thinking about the fact that we're, we're in a pandemic. We've 
all been in it together. We have access to the same information, though people certainly turn to different sources. I can't think of a a single person in my life who doesn't know someone who hasn't had COVID. Um, I know multiple people who have lost loved ones. And yet individuals are assessing risk very differently. How do we account for that? I think I would bring in the concept of motivated reasoning there. So first of all, for those of us who have experienced a hospitalization ourselves or the death of a loved one, I would predict those folks are going to perceive the risk as higher than for the lucky people who have not had a personal experience with a severe COVID outcome. But that's not going to explain all of the reasons why some people perceive a higher risk than others. Some people are in a political identity group where in order to fit in, they need to perceive that the risk is low. And for some people, it's the reverse. Gretchen, with the understanding that we are not that adept at assessing risk, what are some of the questions we can ask ourselves as we continue to move through this pandemic to maybe have a clearer a clearer understanding of of what our risks really are? Well, one suggestion I would make is that the scientists can process the risks in a way that lay people cannot. So if scientists give clear, transparent recommendations for lay people to act on, then lay people's limitations in processing risk, it doesn't have such a large effect. Uh, Second, I would come back to the idea of personally experienced risk. So that that last anecdote you read is a perfect example of someone who experienced an infection from being in a crowd situation and changed their behavior as a result of it. Um, People are very good at that kind of uh, response to personally experienced risk. Uh, And then the third thing I would do is um, echo what Dr. Fauci said at the beginning of the hour about each person taking into account their own risk factors in terms of age and uh, immunocompromising conditions, vulnerable people that they live with. Um, Those kind of qualitative factors I think we're quite good at thinking about. We got this email from Rachel who says, I wear a mask for those who are immune compromised. My niece had lupus. She had just gotten married to her childhood sweetheart last year. She died from contracting COVID just a few months later. She was only 25 years old. I wear them so that I can maybe keep such a sad thing from happening to anyone else. Rachel, sorry for your loss. We also got this email from Kathy who says, I don't think I've ever heard acknowledgement and gratitude for those who wear masks as part of their professions for the safety of others, like medical personnel and food workers. What if these folks decided to feel inconvenienced? Stephen, President Biden is focused on shifting the country out of crisis mode and, and into a new normal of living with the pandemic. How does our behavior change when we accept something as normal? Well, the, the, the remarkable thing that, that hardly anyone believes is that people have a, an immense capacity to bounce back. And this has been demonstrated in past pandemics and outbreaks. So if COVID was to end tomorrow, in a year from now, um, people would probably have resumed their, their pre-pandemic behaviours. So most people do bounce back. Most people are resilient, but not everyone. And that's for a variety of reasons, including person's medical history and, and other sorts of reasons. So one, one of the big questions 
uh, is that it concerns the proportion of people who will have mental health problems as a result of this pandemic once the pandemic is over. And we might not know for several years the true psychological impact of COVID-19 on people's mental health. But that's one of the things that will need to be uh, addressed in the post-pandemic phase. Gretchen, I also wonder about this idea of of normal. I've heard people say over and over again, oh, we've got to get back to normal. But is 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 that a real thing? I'm talking, you know, we've we've gone through such such an experience over the past couple of years. We're still in the pandemic. Do we need to reframe our thinking about normal? I think we do. And I think there are things that we will get used to as part of normal life, even though they weren't before uh, in terms. And there may be behaviors that we accept as normal going forward. I'll use as an example seatbelts. When seatbelts were first introduced, people protested. They didn't want to wear seatbelts. Now, I mean, we're not uh, maybe we don't all wear seatbelts as often as we should, but they're not the they're not the fodder for protest. We kind of accept, oh, we're supposed to wear seatbelts. Maybe that's how we'll feel about masking going forward. We've been talking to Gretchen Chapman, a professor in the Department of Social and Decision Sciences at Carnegie Mellon University. Also with us is Stephen Taylor. He's professor of psychology and a clinical psychologist at the University of British Columbia. He's also the author of The Psychology of Pandemics, Preparing for the Next Global Outbreak of Infectious Disease. Gretchen, Stephen, thanks for speaking with us. Today's producer was Haley Blassingame. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. This is 1A.